Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. No, we're going to... We're gonna. We're into week two, ladies and gentlemen. We are studying one verse for ten weeks, and it's the most famous verse out there. And the reason we're doing it is to remind ourselves that the the Bible is the kind of thing where it's simple enough that a child can understand it, but it's profound enough that you can spend your whole life studying the text and kind of never reach the bottom. So we're just kind of going word by word through John 3.16. So uh, for God was last week. We're going to talk about so loved. And um, just a couple of introductory comments. In um, the original language, Greek, um, so loved could be understood like God loved us so much he sent his son. But the better translation, go ahead and throw that up there if you would. The better translation is for in this way God loved the world. The so there isn't, that's how much he loved us, but it's rather, this is how that love manifested itself. That God sent his unique son, or gave his unique son to the world. And so we want to take a moment to recognize, first of all, uh, for in this way God loved is probably the better way to say that. But secondly, notice how loved here is past tense. Right? Which is interesting, because I kind of think that God loves the world. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, but here, God loved. And, and in, in the original language, this tense is a tense that mean, it means that something happened in the past, and it was completed, and, it, and, and the effects of it carry forward, but the love itself doesn't, which is interesting. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about, okay, well, why, why is it past tense? And in Greek, there are loads of tenses. Uh, the, this particular past tense is the idea that way in eternity past, God loved the world and he gave his son. That love caused him to do something in the past that the effects of which still carry forward. Now there are other texts that tell us that God loves us still, but the kind of love that John 3.16 is talking about is the action word love. It's not that God had great feelings and warm feelings for us and so he sent his son. It's that because of the kind of love that God is and has, God acted in the past to demonstrate that love. Does that make sense? So there's a timelessness to that past love, meaning it happened prior to our even being alive. In fact, there are uh, passages that talk about God loving us before we were even here. Like the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you, past tense, with an everlasting love. That word everlasting means you can't trace the beginnings or endings of it. And so the scriptures speak of this kind of God's love as like not something that's time bound and it's not some warm affection, but it's resulted in a concrete action but you can't find the origins of his love. The origins of his love were like before we ever showed up. Or Titus, Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised when? Before the beginning of time. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Before is a time word. 
So how do you say before time? You can't, right? Before the beginning of time? In other words, that whatever it was that motivated God was there before any of us were there. Make sense? Or next, God chose us in him before when? The creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, the reason I want to emphasize this is God obviously loves us today, but the kind of the thing we're talking about is the kind of love that acts. It's not the kind of love that just feels. It's the kind of love that acts, and it's the kind of love that existed before you and I ever were good or bad. His love of us as individuals and us as a people, it was true before we ever showed up, which means that it doesn't cease being true when we screw up. Right? There's a sense in which we're all familiar with love that comes after. Right? When I'm successful and love comes my way, it's because I'm successful. Love comes after success. Or I'm attractive and so I'm loved because I'm attractive or uh, whatever. We're all familiar with love that comes after something valuable is found out about us. But this is the kind of love that comes before any of that's true. This is the kind of love that's true regardless of how, where you are in the journey. And, and and I know for a lot of us, that's a very theoretical point we will all agree with intellectually, but we don't feel that way. I, I grew up thinking God's approval of me was very much dependent on how I did that day. And so I would do things so that God would love me more, and then there would be other things where I would feel like God would love me less. Now that's not so much the truth about who God is, but that's the truth about how, how I experience what love is in the world. Would you agree? Because part of the fuzziness of understanding that God loves and so loved the world he gave his son, part of the fuzziness is we don't really understand the word love well. Because I use the word love to describe all sorts of things, right? It's a very elastic word. I can love ice cream, I can love football, I can love my wife. In that order. Did you say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. My love is an everlasting love. Oh. Sing it. My banner over you is love. Um, anyway, bad Bible jokes. Um, all that is to say that, like, Anytime we talk about God's love, it's really hard because we're all theoretically going to agree, but none of us live fully into the reality of it. And part of the reason for that is we're unclear about what love turns out to be. You know, if you look up love on, you know, in the dictionary, it's like a strong affection. Or neuro neurochemically, it's a dopamine rush. Um, but for most of us, we assume love is a feeling. Love is something you can fall out of or fall into. In the Bible, the, the kind of love that's being described here is an action word. Love does stuff. Love acts. So the kind of love that God has for us was the motivation for the entire Jesus project. And if you're old enough to remember a very famous preacher on the internet shouting at the top of his lungs at his congregation that God hates you, oof, that is somebody who's very, very misinformed about what God is like. And so, God hates sin, sure, but God loves the world, and we're going to explore what this means as we go through the series. So, first comment, 
It's not God loved the world this much, he sent his son, but this is how God loved, he gave. So it's action. Secondly, the origins of this love were far before any of us showed up in the world. So it's not a love after kind of love, it's a love before kind of love, which means, I mean, have you ever seen or been a parent that has looked at their hour-old infant? Does that, has that infant done anything to be worthy of love? No, but that's where we all start, right? That's the idea. Now, part of the fuzziness is about what love means and what love is. So let's talk about love. Foreigner, put it best. <laughs> I want to know what love is, ladies and gentlemen. And whoever was back there who decided to close the service with that song, last service was genius. So good. But let's talk about love. Now, when we get to love, there are very concrete definitions and understandings and examples of what God's love is like. So we're not going to define love as we think it is or as Hollywood thinks it is or our bodies think it is. We're going to define love based on the way that God loves. Because the invitation for us is to love the way that God loved us. Perfect. But how does God love us? Well, I want to introduce a concept called covenant. Many of you are familiar with this. Covenant is, um, it's like a contract, but there's the added dimension of God involved. So um, the word covenant in Hebrew comes from a verb that means to cut. You would cut a covenant. And what that means is you would cut a covenant. This was before, obviously, you had paper and lawyers, but you would take an animal. This is super gross, I'm sorry. But you would take an animal and cut the animal in half long ways so that the sides would fold. And then both parties would walk through the trail of blood that was left, and the agreement was, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. That's what it meant to cut a covenant. That's where the word covenant comes from. Super gross, <coughs> and we thought about having an illustration today, but we decided not to. Um, at the last minute. At the last minute. <coughs> we found a, no, forget it. All right. So, a covenant is how God demonstrates love. And um, what I want to introduce are four elements. The word is hesed, and it just means loving kindness, but it's God's covenant love. And there are four elements to God's covenant love, all right? <coughs> I'm so sorry. And this is where we're going to spend our time today. Now, are you with me so far? Okay, so what does love look like? Well, love looks like covenant. Yes, sir? Yes. That's, first of all, the question is, the whole, like, you can do to me what we've done to the animal. We have instances where that was taken literally, and instances where it was, you know, a more of a symbolic sort of cutting off. Um, we're going to talk more about it in two weeks. So we're going to come back to this concept. Nice. Nice. See, oh, and by the way, we love questions. So text them, ask them. Susie. is usually here with a microphone. 
All right, so if you have one, wait till we get you a microphone. All right, now, we're talking about covenant. There are four aspects of covenant love. Oh, thank you, Timmons. God's covenant love is demonstrated in a commitment to a person or people, a commitment to be present with the person or people, commitment to advocacy for that person or people, and a commitment to love them in a certain direction, toward a goal. All right, now, what I want you to do is these, this list here, I'm just going to demonstrate from the text very quickly, and then I want to sit on the implications of it. Because we're asking the question, what does it mean that God loved us? He so loved us. Well, it's past tense, which means it caused God to act in the past, and he did that by giving his son. Fantastic. But he gives his son in a specific way and for a specific reason, and that is to establish a covenant where God demonstrates his love. What's his love look like? There it is. Commitment to us, presence with us, advocacy for us, and direction toward, toarding us mat- towards maturity in Christ. Are you with me? Okay. All right. All right. So let's talk about commitment two. This is the language of covenant. So God enters into four big agreements in the Old Testament. The first one is with Noah. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. That was the covenant God made. And this covenant is unconditional, meaning nobody on the other side of that has to do anything. Second covenant was the covenant with Abram. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, Abram, and your descendants after you for the generations to come. The third covenant was given to Israel. Moses took the book of the covenant, which were all the stipulations, and he read it to the people. The people responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you in accordance with all these words. A covenant is God's commitment to another person or people. Sometimes those covenants are unconditional, most of the time, but sometimes they're conditional. So when God says to the nation of Israel, you can stay in the promised land as long as you obey me, that's a conditional covenant. They stopped obeying. They were sent into exile. Are you with me? Not surprising then when we, we see Jesus using the same language from Exodus. When he introduces the Lord's Supper to everybody, he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So it's not like God loves us in the abstract. God has committed himself to a corporate people called the church. And that corporate people now live with him in a covenant relationship. Are you with me? And part of the covenant is God's unconditional commitment to us. But the second part of that is uh, God's presence with his covenant people. All throughout the Old Testament, God is with them. Right? So he's with them in the garden. When he delivers them out of Egypt, he's with them next in the form of a cloud and a pillar of fire. He's guiding them throughout the wilderness next. He then invites them to form a, a tabernacle, a mobile sanctuary, so he can be with them 
Um, then he says he permanentizes that into a temple so that he can be with them. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus shows up, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right in John 14, Jesus says, I will send the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit and he will be with you. Then in the book of Revelation, the great promise, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. The entire storyline of the Bible is of God coming closer. And that's the covenant promise. Not just that he's committed to us, but that he is with us. How does Jesus end Matthew, the whole book of Matthew? I will be with you even to the end of the age. So God is committed to us. This is what love is like. He's committed to us. He's committed to be with us. And then he's committed to be for us. And this language, the forness of God, is um, all throughout the Bible, whenever God says, I will be their God and they will be my people, that's God declaring himself to be for his covenant partner. So in Leviticus 26, I will walk among you and be your God. You will be my people. There's some Old Testament translators that talk about, you could translate that, I will have your back. I will be your advocate. Zechariah, I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful to them as their God. Next. I will ask the Father, disciples, and he will give you another what? Advocate. And that's a, that's a courtroom image. Someone who's arguing on your behalf. Or Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And in Revelation, all those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God, they will be my children. So God's love hasn't changed between Old Testament and New Testament. The New Testament just picks up the same imagery and the same language. But then here's the one that's hardest to understand, okay? Love means commitment to somebody, presence with somebody, advocacy for somebody, but it also means that there's a direction. You're loving towards something. Now, parents, you know this, right? Our love is towards maturity, the maturity of our kids. But God has a direction for us as well. In the Old Testament, one of the job descriptions of Israel was this. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all the nations you will be, my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the goal of Israel. That was their job description. That they would mediate God's presence to the world and that they would be distinct from it. That's what holy means. So God loved them towards that job description. In Leviticus, say to the entire assembly of Israel, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. It's not surprising when we get to the New Testament, there's the same language. Peter says, you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that's straight from Exodus. God's special possession, that's straight from Exodus, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Or Romans 8, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? be conformed to the image of who? So what's, what is God loving us towards? The image, us bearing the image of Jesus, correct? 
I mean, Paul says it a different way here. And we who with unveiled faces contemplate God's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now that's a jet tour. Go ahead and put the list up if you would. And, I, and if you're like, I didn't follow that at all. Great. I was just trying to show you this was from the Bible. <laughs> that's all that was. Um, but this, this list comes from a guy named Scott McKnight, who is a, a theologian at Northern Seminary, who wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference. And oh, this, this was so helpful for me because there are two big points to be made. All right? Now, are we clear on this list? Be honest with me. Does this list make sense? So love is an abstract affection. Love is a commitment to, a commitment to be with, a commitment to be for, and there's a direction of that love towards something. Now, let's go through this first as people who struggle that God is actually this good. Because if you're like me, the only thing I heard about God wasn't that he was committed to me, or that he was present with me, or that he was actually for me. All I heard about God is God wanted me to stop sinning, or I would be in trouble. So I was torted, right? I was, I mean, I experienced God as like what we talked about last week, the, the, the sheriff on the side of a country road waiting for you to break the speed limit. And so God for me was the great person I was going to disappoint in the sky because God had the high standard. I never met it. I know that's why we needed Jesus. But I was taught that, that every time I prayed, I had to start by confessing that I was a sinner because that was my fundamental reality. And that's so different from what the Bible teaches for those in Christ. And so on the one hand, there are those of us who will all agree, yeah, 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 God's with me and for me, he's committed to me, but those are just words that are as cliche as the Hallmark birthday cards we give each other. There's nothing to them. And we experience God as the great torter in the sky. And so there's a, a, a sense in which how the scriptures talk about God's love, it's a love that comes before we do a thing. And if that's true, then the after stuff that we do or don't do doesn't affect the love that was already there. In fact, that love manifested itself in the sending of Christ. Fantastic. But for some of us, the idea that God is committed to us, I mean, as Paul says, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Or that he's present with us in not some abstract way, but in the deep workings of the Spirit inside of us and that he's actually for our flourishing. His goal isn't to keep us unhappy or from having too much fun. His goal is actually our flourishing in the world. For some of us, that's news. Maybe not theoretically, but certainly, did I say theoretically? Yeah, theologically and theoretically. Theoretically, that's a great word. That's a great word. Yeah, let's move it from theoretical Theoretical to emotional hurdle. And, um, but there's a sense in which one of the reasons why we engage in the bread and the cup is because many of us are still working out the theory into the reality. And we just experience God as someone who is constantly disappointed in us and wants us to do better. 
And does God want us to grow in maturity? Of course. But the direction of God's love is never separate from the other things. All right? So I want to go through that the first way as us receiving God's love. The second way I want to go through this as, is as people who are supposed to love others the way that God loves us. And here's the really profound point that Scott McKnight makes. The order of this is really important. Because until somebody experiences that you are committed to them regardless, and you are present with them regardless, and that you are for them regardless, they will not listen to your directing of them and experience it as love. They will experience it as control or manipulation. I was raised to believe that sharing my faith just meant dropping direction bombs on people. And if they accepted it or not, it wasn't up to me. I'd done my job. I think what the scripture means when it talks about us loving our neighbor or loving our enemy isn't having affection or having some great liking, but it's actually the commitment to those things and in that order. Right? As parents, many of us, the struggle is we want to direct our children, but to sit with them, to be for them, to listen to them, I mean, that's a much harder thing. So part of the reason why we have a hard time internalizing God's love for us is because we look at that list and think, yeah, so that's optional when it comes to loving people. Because I am a huge fan of people coming to Jesus. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would love it if everybody did. But somehow we got it twisted that it's okay to not be Jesus-like when sharing about Jesus. And that is such a mess. And so if this is the way God loves us, then this is the way we're to love other people. Well, what if they're living in sin? Well, I am too. My sin is just more socially acceptable, right? And how does God love me? It's his kindness that leads me to repentance. So the reason we emphasize hospitality isn't because we don't think sin is real. Of course it is. We all live within its consequences. It's that until commitment, presence, and advocacy have been established, the naming of each other's sin doesn't do anything except alienate us from each other and from God. But when, and, and there are people in my life who are this to me, and when they give direction, I listen to them. But there are other people who are not that who have direction for me, and I don't respect it as much. We've somehow, we've somehow thought, because the world is sinful, that our only job is to do the direction maneuver. Let's write statements about what sin is and what sin is not and what we affirm and what we don't affirm, and then our job is done. I just think that falls so short of what it means to love our neighbor. So I'm going to stop here because I think the implications of this are fairly significant. I'd love, I mean, we had loads of questions last service. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Yes, sir. Now, hold on. Wait a second. Just so Tim Tim's like, like a gazelle. Oh, and Sam. Nice. Nice, 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 nice. 
All right, so... Um, All right! <laughs> parents better than I might not agree, but... I love my kids all equally, but mm -hmm. I often like them differently. Oh, and no, I'm you're the only one. Because like, because like in the Bible, you know, it says like in different occasions, like, you know, God was pleased with something. Does yeah. that have any effect? Oh, so good. That's a fantastic question. Um, my answers aren't great, but... Here's, here's, here's one way I think about it that may or may not be true, but it's been helpful to me. I used to think that that was the way God was with me. That, um, yes, he had to like me because I accepted Jesus, but, you know, he, he kind of didn't that day or whatever. And so I, th I thought it was very variable. And I also thought that God, even though I'm a Christian, God was still waiting to zap me for the sins, and that's why I always needed to start with confession, right? Get that out of the way. I've come to think differently um, about that. I'm not sure that Jesus, um, that that's the way I would sort of describe it. I think that the rewards of obedience and the consequences of disobedience are built into the behaviors themselves. So that God isn't up there smiting people, but rather, let's say you give yourself over to lust and pornography over and over and over again. That, 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 caught, that forms you into a certain kind of person that lives under the power of that sin. And that's the punishment. Whereas, cultivating generosity, forgiveness, humility forms you into a different kind of person where you actually, you flourish more in human life living that way. Now, I think there are, and in some way the Bible hints that there's some sort of cosmic judgment waiting for all things. And I don't know how exactly that's going to work. I don't think it's going to be a VCR tape for 80s kids of, you know, all the things I did wrong. I think it's differently than that. I think it's going to be the truth is just shown for all that it is. But that's a different discussion. So I tend to think that the reason we're called to obey isn't because God's going to be pleased or displeased. But rather, we are, in, in our obedience, we are aligning with, with what's true and real in the world and leads to flourishing. And in disobedience, we resist that. Make sense? And, and I, I see what God does is that God's presence rests on a way of life more than an approval of behavior. You know what I mean? So the way of weakness, the way of forgiveness, I mean, and that's super hard. The way of humility, the way of peacemaking. God's presence rests when we lean into those directions and differently than it rests on revenge taking and getting even and having the last word and all those sorts of impulses. So that's kind of what I suspect how it would work, but that's a phenomenal question. Please feel free to take that for what it's worth. It's really, really good. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just had a question. I kind of understand, I think I'm with the whole presence, advocacy, and direction. Another parent question. We have a five and four year old. Yes. So it's really hard, but can you speak a little bit more about the commitment to and what that looks like as parents and like yeah. what that just how, you know, like what can you speak a little bit more about that, I guess? Yes, absolutely. What that looks like as a parent, I guess. Yes. And, and believe me, if you met our kids, 
We are the best parents. There is no question about that. I know, seriously. Poor Hannah's like, not a, no, no more. Um, so so I, I don't know how it works for everybody. For me, it worked as this. I will love you and am committed to you regardless of your choices. So when Nate, our oldest, prayed the prayer, the first thing I told him to accept Jesus, the first thing I told him was, I will love you even if you don't buy the Jesus thing. My love for you is independent of whether or not you follow Jesus. Because the goal of my parenting isn't to make them Christian. Right? And boy, some people are really going to disagree with that. Because I don't think you can make anyone Christian. And I think making Christians is where we screw them up from becoming (laughs) Christians. So, part of my goal was to constantly, verbally and otherwise, communicate that my approval of them was independent of their behavior. But I could dislike their behavior and disagree with their behavior, but I was not going to use shame words attached to their value or worth in my eyes, depending on how they performed that day. Now, whether or not I did is a question for them to kind of answer, but, but Christian parenting is awful because there are books out there that are like growing kids God's way, and I don't want to screw them up, so i got to do God's way, as if the goal were to get them to pray a prayer and be baptized and then good luck. I think the, I, I, I just don't, I, I think my experience is that parenting has been a much more profound exercise in not forcing and not coercing, and rather being steadfastly committed to them regardless of how good their choices were. You may, but hope, babe, babe, yeah, wait for a mic. Wait for this mic. Um, the other thing, too, is I can honestly say that our kids have never been punished because I think too many well. parents... Just stop. I'm talking now. Because <laughs> he's just going to be jokey. That's the why I said that. Um, That's fair. A lot of parents, and being a middle school teacher, I see this. They just give arbitrary punishments without actually getting to the root of why um, or what was going on behind it. And, you know, take a phone away or do this or that, but never got to the why. And Mike does an amazing no, job. No, do not make you me do. look good here. You, are, you do, of nope. actually getting, and getting to the why. And I can say that we thankfully have... Kids who pretty much tell us everything now because they know. <laughs> I said pretty much um, because they know that we're going to love them no matter what. Right. So hey, can we have them share a few things right now? Most maybe most. That's recent, it. That's most it. Recent moral failure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go real, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. That's so good. So I hope that doesn't come across as figured out because oh, good Lord, no. But that's how. I, so that list changed the way I parented, I was a friend, and how I shared my faith. That list was one of the most important things I've ever learned in that order. And so it totally changed how I parented because I thought the goal of Christian parenting was to make Christian kids. And then I realized you can't make Christian kids. And so I was set free to then try to live a compelling life so that they might be interested. But my commitment to them was was unattached to whether or not their life took the trajectory I wanted for it. And I know that's so easy to say. So forgive me, I feel cringy inside about me right now. 
And because it was such a great question, I don't want to make it at all about us, but that's how it played out with, with us. No more from our family. I love you, Nate. <sighs> okay. Okay, I'm dying on the inside here because you asked a great question, and I'm sorry it's become about... Isn't making Christian kids, isn't that just skipping to the direction part? Or am I, like, taking that wrong? That's it. Let's go. Okay, this whole thing is awful, and we will not put this service on the interweb. I can tell you that right now. Yes, please. Right here, right here, Mike. Let's talk about something else. Hi. Am I, am I, okay, I can touch that. Um, okay, sorry to ask. Can I have the list back up real quick? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I've got all the nerves. I'm new to Journey. I've never asked a question. So I've got the sweaty palms and everything. Um, okay, so commitment to presence with advocacy for direction towards. So my question is, um, when you have been really wounded by a, a Christian or another believer, and um, you have tried... Um, Okay, so, I mean, clearly I'm not perfect or anything like that, but you really feel like you have tried the root of grace and love and asking to come together and pray together and yada, yada, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you are met with resistance or legalism or whatever that looks like. Yeah. Um, and even down to the point of, um, you know, I'm not trying to be too vulnerable, but... <laughs> But like where, I guess my question is, at what point, so like you can take all these scripture verses as far as like if it's a believer, you know, if someone in the church, you go to them once and you, you know, you talk to them, you, you know, you try to, try to kind of work it out with them. And then, you know, yeah. the, the scripture verses that say that. Yeah. But then there comes a point as well that like even like therapists would say, oh, no, that's not a good idea anymore. Like you know, you need to now set a boundary and step away for your own health. Yeah. How does it look to, to do that and to, like, advocate for and commit to and continue yeah. and then oh, also have great. boundaries for yourself? And I don't know if that's all making sense. It's like, totally making look? sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, right, abusers can run that list and make all the same claims right? Hey, I'm doing this for your good. Um, or, or they can argue towards manipulative ends by saying, yes, this is God's direction. I mean, all of this can be corrupted. Absolutely. And what I've learned in therapy myself is that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is when I yield my right to hurt them back. And so I release them. So forgiveness is I release them because I want to hurt back. So I release from that. Reconciliation takes two to tango and a bit of mutuality. And forgiveness doesn't mean that I forget what happened or put myself back in that situation, but it means that if ever I have the chance to bring them harm, I refuse and instead seek their blessing. Now, that doesn't mean in a super close proximity. It just means someone says something about this person and I want to add my experience with them to the mix I refrain, right? That's loving your neighbor. And so that doesn't mean having to get back into close proximity with them. For me, it means I'm, I'm because you're absolutely right, there are times where boundaries have to be held and enforced. Absolutely. 
It is hard. No. Oh, whoa, I wish. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know what you're saying. Okay, okay. Oh, yes. She's saying it's not just a one-time thing, and can we all agree? It is most certainly not a one-time thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Mike, here's a... Oh. <coughs> Okay, say that. There's forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not every relationship is meant to be restored. Yeah, good. Excellent, Susie. Thank Here's you. an online one, Mike. Yeah. It what? says, we can't be equally committed to, with, and for everybody equally. Yes. As limited humans, how can we be faithful to this without taking on more than is ours? Oh, that's so great. Um. <laughs> A couple of thoughts. Uh, first of all, um, my, my, um, by the definition of love in that way, that necessitates a small number of people, right? I can't love a lot of people that way. Now, I can be loving towards people, right? In a generic, like, I'm online or I'm you know, uh, with a server, and I can be kind and generous and all of those things. But that kind of love, um, you're right, is restricted to kind of a short list. Um, although I want to practice that way of loving, no, no matter it is, you know, who I come across. Um, one of the things that was super freeing for me was a guy named Andy Stanley once said, um, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And, um, and I thought, dang, that's really, really good. So um, I try to not, um, it personally, have, um, I try to have people who are in crisis, who are a mess, who have my cell, who can call, who can do all the things, even though I can't do that for everybody, because it helps ground me in what that kind of love is, both in giving and receiving. Does that make sense? Do you guys want to add anything to that? Great. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, last one. Hey, how's it going? Um, hey, how are you? I'm good. So this question is, it's kind of like a parent question, but it's the opposite. It's like me being as a son and listening to my dad. So what I struggle with is, you know, my relationship with my dad has gotten a lot better the last year, thanks to God and recovery. But at the same time, though, it's like we were raised completely different. He came, he like, he broke the cyclical effect of like gang violence and like, parental abuse and that's wow. how not I was raised wow. that's that's how I was not raised <clears throat> but at the same time though like now that I'm in recovery and like as an adult and stuff it's hard to like make boundaries with him and he just breaks them and continues to break them but then also though it's like I understand he's my dad and I love him but he also sees me still as like a 15 year old which is I get it but it's like I'm 29 and like it's just hard because it's like I'm not trying to like be boastful, but it's like I'm a veteran. I have a year. I have. I've done stuff. I've seen stuff. But it's just like yo pops. Like I just like at the end of the day, I just want him to respect my boundaries. Yeah. But it's hard because when he crosses that line, it goes weeks or months with without me talking to him. And then like my mom gets in and she's like, you need to talk to your dad and like all this other stuff. And it's just like, how do I love my dad well with explaining to him that I want to love him well without having to be the bigger person or trying to feel like I'm parenting my parent, if that makes sense. Oh. Thank you. Oh. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think a lot of us really relate with that struggle. 
And for those of us who are parents, knowing that's where we're headed with our kids, it's intimidating. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't, I don't really have a good answer. I, I mean, I, as someone who was a big advocate of therapy and spiritual direction, like, that's where I would tend to want to work those things out. I know that um, as we're called to honor our mother and father, and we're also invited to hate our mother and father, both by Jesus. And that, that, that mix is exactly where you're fishing. Like, we honor their role in our lives and celebrate all that's good and true and beautiful. And we uh, are invited to kind of grow beyond them as Jesus takes us beyond them. Not in a way that causes us to disdain them, but in a way that we are now separate from them and their approval or disapproval doesn't have the same power it once did. And I don't know how best to do that. I'm still working, I'm still working that out myself. So can I just bless you and say, I think a lot of us feel the same way and I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. Hey, we need, to, we need to get moving. I know there are other, I know, I see your, I see it. Hey, Mike, here's one that's really, I think, worth taking. It. It's real fast. Okay, The famous fast. theologian, Pat Benatar, said, love is a battlefield. What do you think about that? Hit me with your best shot. Oh, yes, yes, yes. All right, if you're under the age of 25, that was brilliant. Pat Benatar, 1980s. Oh, I mean, I mean, if we're going to go there, Bon Jovi, you give love a bad name, all right? <sighs> okay, so here's what we're going to do today. Good Lord. I'm going to go apologize to my children. Um, what we wanted to take communion together today a little differently. Normally, we take it kind of uh, around the room individually, but we thought to, today we would take it together. Because it is, it is in the realness of the bread and the cup that we begin to trust that this is God's posture towards us. That he is with us and committed to us and he is for us and loving us towards maturity in Jesus. But that whole mix is what's true of us and more true of us than anything else. So here's what I'd love for you to do. We're just going to play some background music for a couple minutes and I'm going to come back up and lead us. But would you hold the elements, don't take them yet, we'll take them together, and would you reflect a little bit on which of those, the four, is the hardest for you to believe about what God is like towards you? And maybe to ask God to show in ways that are very meaningful to you that love in that area.